This is Baseball Tonight, the podcast. This is the Baseball Tonight podcast for Friday, August 5th, 2022. And today will be better than yesterday. Producing from uh, the studios of Bristol is Sarah Abbott. Also, Taylor Schwenk is working from his home studio in the foothills of Connecticut. I'm up in Vermont. I'm Buster only. Uh, since we last produced a podcast, which was right after the trade deadline, we heard about the sad news of the passing of Vince Scully. We're going to be talking about that coming up with Carl Ravitch on the podcast. The Dodgers played the Giants yesterday. Dodgers won, but along the way, Clayton Kershaw had to leave the game. So it says one more, and you don't see anything here as far as him grabbing his arm or looking at his arm. But whatever it was, he knew right away that he couldn't keep going. Here's Dodgers manager Dave Roberts talking about Kershaw's injury. You know, as he was going through a start, um, in that fifth inning, the, the bottom of the fifth inning, he just uh, got checked up on a throw and um, said his uh, back uh, tightened up on him. So um, we didn't want to push it anymore. And obviously Clayton didn't fight to stay in, uh, which is somewhat telling, um, but certainly uh, smart. So uh, we're going to get back to Los Angeles, get some tests and, and see where we're at um, You know, going forward. You know, anytime a pitcher's got to come out of a game, there's somewhat concern level. Um, uh, and again, given it's it's his back, which has uh, been problematic at times. So um, we just won't know more until we get some tests. Some other news and notes. Newly acquired Whit Merrifield says he's received the COVID-19 vaccination and he'll be able to play in Toronto for the Blue Jays uh, moving forward. Of course, you remember a series recently when Merrifield was with the Royals he wasn't vaccinated, so he wasn't available to play. And that uh, led to a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of issues between Merrifield and the Royals uh, because of comments that Merrifield made. The Red Sox released outfielder Jackie Bradley Jr. Jackie Bradley, one of the best outfielders that we've ever seen, 32 years old. This was his second stint with the Red Sox, the team that drafted him. Last night, a great game between the Mets and the Braves. The Mets jumped all over Braves starter Kyle Wright in the bottom of the third inning. 1-1. Alonzo hits it toward left field. This is deep. Back for Rosario to watch it go. It's gone. Home run, Pete Alonzo. 2-1. Vogelback hammers one to right field. This is deep. This ball is gone. Home run, Daniel Vogelback. The Braves had cut into the lead, so Buck Showalter would go to his closer, Edwin Diaz, for two innings. He was asked about that decision after the game. He had five days off, and we've been able to stay away from him. And his appearance under control, he had to, what, a 10 or 11 pitch, eighth. Could have changed if he'd had a different, just wanted him to face that part of the order in the eighth and see where the game dictated. Good spot. I knew I didn't want to use Trevor back to back, and Michael, after yesterday, with a lot of pitches back to back. So it worked out good that we had him rested and ready. At the end of the day, the Mets lead over the Braves, four and a half games. The A's and the Angels and Shohei Otani was putting on a show. Here's the next delivery and Shohei swings at that one and drives a ball deep to right center. It is out of here. But again, the A's defeated the Angels. The Angels just can't win no matter what Otani does, no matter what Mike Trout does. The Brewers and the Pirates and the Brewers have struggled since the trade of Josh Hader, especially in late inning situations. And this is what happened in their game against the Pirates on Thursday. 
And a base hit for Tuca Pizza. Marcano makes it three to two. Gamble line drive, base hit into right field. Delay does not run well. Here's the throw to the plate. He's gonna be safe, and this game is tied. And oh, what a stop, Hayes! There's one! Oh, zip, zap, kazoo! The Buckos just turned two. What a play by Key Brian Hayes. Extra innings, they've lost six straight extra inning games. Fly ball to right, toward the line, and that's gonna get down. That's a fair ball, it's a tie game. Brian Reynolds ties it at four, and he's at second with nobody out. Chavis at the plate, two strikes on him. Gets away, here comes the winning run! Walk it off on a wild pitch! Pirates sweep the Brewers! Kristen Yelich, the Brewers star, was asked about the impact of the hater trade and speaking with reporters after the Brewers loss on Thursday. You were lying if it said, you know, if you said it didn't have any effect, but at the same time, it's like we're pros, you know, you gotta you got to do what you got to do to perform at your best to get the job done. And, you know, we, we weren't able to do that these last three days. Sarah, what else you got? All right, Buster. So ESPN and partnership with Peyton Manning's Omaha Productions presents Soup with Coop. Cooper Manning invites players and coaches from across sports to share laughs while enjoying a bowl of his guest's favorite soup. When the soup is finished, the conversation ends. That's Soup with Coop. Listen wherever you get your podcast. Next, he was the face of the New York Yankees, a five-time World Series champion, and the most popular and admired player in baseball, and one of the greatest sports superstars of any age. The captain tells the story of Derek Jeter's life and Hall of Fame career anchored by exclusive, extensive, unprecedentedly candid interviews catch episodes of five and six out now and we kind of discussed it a little bit but man you got flames there you got flamed there at the end of i did Derek, Derek, Derek said something about that i said and we're going to talk about that coming up <laughs> vivid seats wants to get you to the games you love this spring experience every pitch assist and game-winning shot live and in person and the best part each transaction is a step toward a free 11 ticket with Vivid Seats rewards. Score unbeatable perks like free tickets, surprise seat upgrades, and annual birthday deals. As the official ticketing partner of ESPN, Vivid Seats is offering you $20 off your first $200 ticket purchase with code BASEBALL. That's code BASEBALL. Visit VividSeats.com or download the app today. Vivid Seats. Experience it live. Dogs are an important part of our lives, and keeping them protected is a top priority, especially against nasty parasites. That's why you gotta check out NexGuard Plus, a Foxaloner, Moxidectin, and Pyrantal chewable tablets. NexGuard Plus chews provide one and done monthly protection that kills fleas and ticks, prevents heartworm disease, plus it treats and controls roundworms and hookworms. That's a whole lot of protection packed into a delicious beef-flavored soft chew designed to make monthly dosing easy and enjoyable. So the next time you're at the vet, ask about NextGuard Plus Chews. They're the one-and-done monthly parasite protection you want for your dog. Used with caution in dogs with a history of seizures or neurological disorders. Dogs should be tested for existing heartworm infection prior to starting preventive.
aboard. It's the Ravi Train with Carl Ravage on Baseball Tonight. The Ravi Train, Carl Ravage. Carl, it feels like we can finally take our breath after what's been a crazy few weeks. And how cool is it that our first game in the second half, we got the Padres, we got the Dodgers, and Dodger Stadium. We stepped in that. That's really fortunate. I mean, the Padres made all the moves at the deadline. The Dodgers are the Dodgers. So, yeah, I, I, I agree. From uh, draft day through trade deadline, it was as, it was as busy and, and interesting a two-and-a-half-week period as I remember in baseball uh, covering the sport. So we saw the future of baseball. We certainly see the present of baseball. And those deals kind of change the dynamic and, and where where teams are and where they hope to be. It's going to be a real – like it takes the dog days and makes them even more interesting than they generally are as we look forward to September, but it makes August really, really cool. So, uh, as you know, our trade deadline show, our work there got done at about 6.30 on uh, Tuesday and then went and taped a podcast. And I, I was asleep by, you know, 10 o'clock that night. Uh, I'm sure you were, too, you know, I, I was tired. I was gassed after the, you know, the red eyes and such. And so I wake up to a, a text at five in the morning saying, hey, we need you on SportsCenter. And I'm assuming it's about Juan Soto and the trade and everything going on. And then I see the news about Vin Scully. And your tweet about Vin was actually the first that I saw uh, about you know him passing. When you heard the news, first off, how did you hear the news? And, and what was your reaction? Well, I'd say about two weeks ago, I had talked to somebody with the Dodgers and I asked, you know, had they seen or spoken to and somebody had said, you're likely not going to see Vin again at Dodger Stadium. I didn't necessarily associate that with with sort of a a, a soon to be passing away, but they, they made it sound like he wasn't doing great. Um, so when I had heard that and then I saw that news and you but what they said with his age, uh, you know, it's it's really, really sad. But I, I would look back and I think it was a Vin line. You know, Vinny said, you know, let, 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 let's not let's not cry because it's over. Let's smile because of what we had. That's certainly the way that I would think Vin Scully would would like everybody to look at his life. Um, because, my goodness, did he provide all sorts of of memories and smiles. And, you know, he, he was he was the soundtrack in the two biggest cities in this country for baseball when it was the most and only sport people really cared about for so many years. So I, I would, I feel wonderful for him. I'm sad for his family, but my gosh, 94 years, 67 with the Dodgers. It's, it's an unprecedented and will never be matched again run by somebody who did what we do in a, in the most unique way possible. And it obviously resonated with, with every one of us. So I grew up, as you know, in central Vermont, a huge Dodger fan. I uh, We didn't have a television, so I actually never heard his voice until I got an LP following the Dodgers championship season of 1981. And it was like hearing a voice of a baseball god. Uh, and, right. and I was afraid of him, Carl. Like, I'm not starstruck when it comes to players. Players are players. But I, I avoided him in my time when I was around the Dodgers because I felt like I wasn't worthy of his time. Uh, tell me about your interaction with them. Well, see, I, you know, as I've said to people here recently, you know, in this current culture we live in, which is about I and me, he always made it about you. Um, he, he approached 
you know, not me in alone. He, he seemed to approach many people, walked into booths, introduced himself, asked the opposing radio guys or, or print people who are covering the team, what can you tell me about what's going on inside the clubhouse, et cetera. I always found him to, to be approachable as opposed to be intimidated by him. And look, I, I, you know, I, I hear what you're saying with regards to he's, he's a God and all those things. And it's a little bit uh, intimidating. I, he, he just struck me with his style as being the most approachable down to earth, Johnny Carson doing baseball appeal to the masses personality that I, you know, I could think of. So I, uh, he was always about asking you, asking me, how's it going? What's ESPN like? What, what have you learned? What are you, what are you seeing out there? And he was, he was just welcoming, and that that part, you know, endeared me to him. Like every other person that's ever got a chance to interact with him was was endeared to him. And and you're right. I I think sometimes we overlook the ability of that voice of his to cut through glass. I mean, it it was just so unique, and that's uh, that can't be can't be discounted when you talk about who he was and what he meant is is it became familiar, but it's also such a unique voice. I know there's people that do imitations of him. It was incredibly unique, and uh, that, that, that also separated him. Yeah, and, and at the heart of what he did, of course, was his storytelling. And I want to get your opinion on this because I've heard uh, a lot of your play-by-play peers joke about this but not really be joking about it. They felt like he had this unique connection with the baseball gods, so that as he told the story and he needed one more foul ball to punctuate the story exactly the way he wanted to, he always seemed to get that. As someone who's, you know, sits in that chair of a, of a play-by-play man, tell me what you, mechanically and uh, pacing, what, what you saw in him. Yeah, I mean, his ability to, to, to land the plane, his ability to weave in and out, um, like I, I think he had, after years and years, he's as well read a, a person, you know, I, I, if we pull the curtain back, we have a mutual uh, friend named John Walsh, who for years basically led ESPN. Uh, he, he was the guy that was involved with Sports Center, ESPN Radio, brilliant man, uh, incredibly well-spoken buster. The other day, John and I were on the phone together, and I just asked him. We were talking about Bill Russell, and then we talked about Vince Scully. And I said, "So, what you know, what what were your interactions like?" And John Walsh, again, was the lead man for ESPN for what felt like forever. I'm guessing it was it was three decades. It may have been a little short, may have been a little longer than that. Point is, he said, he said, Ravi, my number one experience at ESPN, number one. And he did everything. My number one experience was when ESPN got the national radio contract. He wanted to bring Vin Scully aboard. He spent four hours with Vin at a hotel restaurant in Los Angeles. And they spoke about things from Shakespeare to baseball uh, to growing up in Brooklyn to moving to L.A., et cetera, et cetera. He said that was the number one experience I've had in my years at ESPN. So wow. that that type of ability to to get to somebody who's had it, who's had more experiences than Vince Scully, not just baseball related, uh, shows you the type of impact he had on on everybody. I think John is a, is a reflection of everybody, and Vince's worldly ability to talk about subjects, weave them in and out, and have an edit button to know I'm gonna I have a I have a five minute story, but I got fifty seconds. I got thirty seconds. What are the highlights? 
And what's the important part that people are going to take away? I think he had that unique edit in his head to realize I'm, I got baseball, I got a strike, I got one out. Oh, now I got two outs. I'm going to have to move this along. What, what, are the, what are the parts that need to get in? I think that's what I, you know, that, that was always a, an incredible ability. How do, you, how do you know which details that you need to get in to make this story a story? That's what he did so well. Yeah. And I didn't know that about John. That's great. Uh, you know, he's someone, yeah. as you know, he met everybody like he knew everybody, John, everybody, John, you know, he, he has experienced uh, speaking with everybody. And so for him to feel that way, um, uh, that's pretty cool. All right. Padres Dodgers, you mentioned we landed in it this weekend. I, I you know, I'm excited to see the Padres with Juan Soto. Uh, they're going to ask me a question on the show. Get up today about you know, who I think is a bigger threat to win the World Series, Padres or Dodgers? And, you know, that question, I think we have to put some context into it because what I'm going to say is Dodgers, but the Dodgers are vulnerable with Walker Bueller still coming back from an injury with Clayton Kershaw walking off the mound yesterday. A lot of uncertainty about what he's going to contribute to, you know, going forward in this season. These two teams are a lot closer than 11 and a half games that are in separate in the standings right now. Yeah, to me, the two teams are even. I mean, I you know, in Fangraph's projections for the rest of the way, I think have the Dodgers and the Padres. I think the Padres are, have a 802 winning percentage and the Dodgers 798, 702 and 698. Point is, after the moves, the Padres, if all else were equal, if we started a new season today, uh, the Padres projection-wise would end up with a better record. So, and it's so close, I would say that they're even. Um, I I think the Padres and, and Dodgers is is a one of the ways to look at it. I, I still think the Mets and Braves have to be in that conversation because the Dodgers, I don't think, are going to get caught in the West. Um, but again, you get into the playoffs, and to your point, if they don't get caught, they avoid a wild card round. Uh, we'll see, but it feels like avoiding the wild card round against a good team is going to be what's really important here for these teams. And if you can't avoid that, We'll see if any of the wild card teams are able to squeak through, win the NLCS or ALCS, and then get to the World Series. I, boy, we'll see. I think winning the division is a huge deal this year, and, and time will tell. Well, I don't think there's any doubt that the best series that we're going to see in that first round, the wild card round, is going to be the series between what appears to be destined to be the number two team in the National League East versus the number two team in the National League West. You know, the let's say, you know, yeah. we hold standings today, you're going to have the Mets and the Braves, or Mets and the Dodgers will have first-round buys. And that means that the Padres and the Braves would face each other in that first round in a three-game series. Carl, that would be unbelievable. <laughs> like, you have defending champions, uh, the, the Atlanta Braves trying to become the first team to go back-to-back -back since those uh, 98 to 2000 Yankees. And then on the flip side, you have the Padres who've gone all in on this season. That would be an amazing series. But if you were to, let's say the Braves catch the Mets this year and the Mets were in that series, the same dynamic would be in place. With DeGrom and Scherzer assuming health. Uh, look, that, that's yes. the point about that. that, that when, you, when you're asked about that, the Dodgers have a better chance because they're very likely going to avoid that series. That's a brutal series. And it's not... Uh, it's not the Brewers who are really good, but it's those two teams. And those two teams, the Braves and Mets, are involved in a series right now that obviously is a, is a nasty series. So I, that's why I think the Dodgers have the advantage. They don't have to deal with those two teams.
Yep. Um, and I want to ask you about Mets and Braves in a second, but first about Kershaw. Uh, I think going forward, he's just at the age and he's at the, you know, he's got the injury history that you assume nothing. That's the way I feel about it in terms of what he's going to bring. And you remember last year, he made 15 starts. Uh, he went out on July 3rd. He came back for four outings in September, October 1st, and he didn't pitch in the postseason. Like he broke down last season. Last night was his 15th start. Uh, and, you know, we'll see how he is going forward. What's your perspective? Red flag. I mean, I, that's, there's nothing worse than seeing a, an older a veteran guy, an older veteran guy walk off the field, and it's not necessarily an elbow or a shoulder, but it's something that you generally associate with age, a bad back. That's what you associate with, with age. And there are just things that don't necessarily heal very quickly, but – we saw Max Scherzer be unable to get out of bed a few years ago, and then he pitched, you know, two nights later in the World Series. So I, I just—it's a red flag. I, I'm I'm real worried, and I'm sure he is, and I'm sure the Dodgers are because this is something we've seen. And you're absolutely right—you don't know how somebody responds. For all you know, Dodger fans and baseball fans, let's hope he bounces and he's good. But that was that was disconcerting, and I think there's a little bit of uh, yeah, yeah, I mean. You, you could kind of see it not coming because he wasn't hurt, but you, you're not surprised by it. You're not shocked, and you're, you're troubled. I, I think it's a red flag. I'm worried. All right. Throughout June, the Braves cut deeply into the lead that the Mets had built in the National League East, and you know, because they're the defending champions and uh, the way their lineup is coming together, Spencer Strider, you're probably the number one candidate for National League Rookie of the Year. Michael Harris, second, probably the number two candidate. Uh, you know, I was thinking, okay, the Braves are probably just going to roll past the Mets. I love the fact that the Mets, the new Mets, 2022 Mets have counterpunched. They took two or three from the Braves in a series uh, recently. And then last night, they win the first game of that series, jumping on Kyle Wright right, right away. Yeah. Look, <laughs> we always said the, the Mets have the ability to get Jacob DeGrom back. Uh, when and this was when Scherzer was hurt. No team added the two best pitchers in the National League. No team did. The Mets did. The Mets had a tremendous lineup already, um, and I think this has validated what you know Epler and Showalter and all the new additions mean. It is a legitimate threat. I, I and look, Edwin Diaz at the back end of that thing is a joke. And last night he came in and pitched two innings. Um, they, they are, you know, it, it, I guess it validates, it legitimizes. They're not going away. They're really good. Diorme is like a, a really good player who makes defensive plays that maybe in years past they, they kicked around. Their defense is better. They run the bases better. They got two starting studs. Bassett's been really good. They got a guy that can close games. It, it's not, I don't think, you know, for people that are worried about it, the, the old Mets. I think it's different, and they're showing it. Let's see what the next four days bring. I love Buck going to Diaz for two innings last night. What would you think? I'm in. I mean, he, as Buck explained after, because you knew they were going to ask, you haven't pitched in five days. We got him. I know we got four more games, including a doubleheader, but he hasn't pitched. And when you have a chance to win and add another game to your lead, you do it. And that's what he did. And he was great. And there was a little bump too, but he was able to get through it, which was wonderful. I don't think there's any doubt that the Josh Hader traders are seeing the impact of it on the Brewers. It's had a gut punch on that team. Uh, and there could be a lot of questions that are going to be answered if their recent trend continues, what are you seeing in the Brewers? Yeah. You know, that ha it's funny how that happens when teams 
trade somebody who's as valuable as Hader. It's not a shock, and I remember on our deadline special bringing up the fact that that I'm one of those who do believe there's something unique about being a closer. And here, you know, Devin Williams is in this closer spot, or whoever else has to pick up those those save opportunities that Williams uh, that uh, Hader once had. And yeah, you have that mistake, and all of a sudden you're like, oh gosh, why do we get rid of him, et cetera, et cetera. I I think the Brewers are going to be okay, but. Look, it's not like they traded Josh Hader when he was completely on a downslide and the rest of the year was going to suck for him. Yep. And the Cardinals, uh, you know, last night with the with what happened yesterday, the Cardinals uh, move into a tie for, for first place in the National League Central. I, you, you and I have been on the Cardinals, I think, all year, looking at the talent they have, and you know, now they have these additions. I think it's going to be hard for the Brewers to, you know, to hold them off. We'll, uh, we'll have to see how that goes. All right. Uh, I wanted to ask you about this. So on, because I got a ton of folks uh, on social media uh, commenting to me about it. Derek Jeter, uh, his uh, series, The Captain, uh, rolled into episode six last night. And they ran a clip that I did in my interview when I talked about his last year. And, and what I spoke about was how much he struggled at the beginning of that year. He had a 588 OPS on May 4th. And what I said, as you'll hear, is about Derek as captain and his responsibility to the team and, and how I feel like, uh, or I felt like that he really needed to go to Joe Girardi and say, look, if you need to move me down the lineup, I totally get it. Because as you remember, Derek always hit first or second. This is what I said, and this, this is how Derek responded. When you have a star as big as Derek was, a lot of times organizations will wait for that player to say, hey, maybe now it's time. At some point, Derek as the captain, I thought he would go in to Joe's office and say, look, if you need to drop me down the lineup, I'm all for that. And as far as I know, that never happened. I think that's something he should have done. What kind of is that? That's what I would say. You think I'm not a team player? So uh, even a, a, a asinine comment like that makes no sense. So Carl, <laughs> he obviously firing back, said it was an asinine statement. I would say this, you and I both know a ton of examples in baseball history where a player, especially a star player, goes to the manager and essentially takes pressure off him by saying, look, if you need to, to bench me, if you need to move me down, go ahead and do it. And, and it's the reason why that's done is because no one wants to disrespect a superstar player. No one wants to disrespect the captain, which I think is why the onus was on Derek to do it in that situation. Uh, I'm a little bit surprised. It seemed like he wasn't aware of that. And I must say, too, you know, he's mentioned about the pride of being a shortstop his whole career. I actually don't think that it was necessarily a great thing because, it, you know, Derek wasn't always the best option at shortstop, especially later in his career. And as he struggled offensively early in that year, I, I, there were other guys who probably would have been better suited to hit first or second for the team. What'd you think? I think you're trying to apply logic and reason to an athlete who uh, was able to defy those things, has incredible belief in themselves. It's like the starting pitcher who looks over his shoulder in the bullpen and says, right. you're going to bring that guy in? You know, that you're going to bring him in? I think it's, it's steadfast in his belief that he's the best and still was able to perform at a level that whoever the next guy was, wasn't going to do. He, he made a living coming up with big hits. He made a living winning World Series. The idea that this is the year I'm going to go into Joe Girardi and say, move me down. I, 
it's just illogical. Like if that doesn't make sense, as much as it sounds logical and seems reasonable, it doesn't apply to athletes. It won't apply to Tom Brady. It doesn't apply to Derek Jeter. It doesn't apply to Michael Jordan. They believe, you know, in themselves and the mere suggestion that they're going to do that. I mean, part of that speaks to the dynamic the Yankees had. I get the whole captain part, but it's still the manager's responsibility to make that decision. And it's not on Derek Jeter to say, you should move me down. It's on the manager. And that's, that's part of the dysfunctionality or allowing a player or personality to become bigger than the team or the room. And I think that's what happened in this case. Uh, I, I would you know, say, you know, from Lou Gehrig on down, I, I could cite you dozens of examples where players, star players, went to the manager and said, hey, you can move me down. Willie Mays moved down the lineup. Hank Aaron moved down in the lineup. They changed positions as they got older because that's the adjustment that was made. And I really hope, I really, really hope that the director, Randy Wilkins, asked this question of Derek. Did Joe Girardi ever approach you about being moved down the lineup? And I suspect he was. And what was your response? And it'd be interesting to hear to see if that uh, that question was actually asked. All right, Ravi, I will see you in Los Angeles this weekend. Look forward to it. Can't wait. See you soon, buddy. Bye-bye, Buster. Thanks, Ravi. For the ones who get it done, Granger offers high-quality supplies and solutions for every industry, as well as access to product specialists who have the knowledge and experience to answer your toughest questions. Plus, their commitment to being your safety partner can help you keep your facilities safe and your people safer. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. We're driven by the search for better. When it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of the show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash buster just go to indeed.com slash buster right now and support our show by saying you heard about indeed on this podcast indeed.com slash buster terms and conditions apply need to hire you need indeed jessica mendoza is an analyst for espn and jess uh what a week to be working as a dodger broadcaster uh, you know, the news about Vin Scully. So tell me about that experience. I mean, it was, we knew he was sick, um, but we had no idea that he was that close. Um, so it was the middle of the game, you know, you hear from your producer, you know, Vin Scully has passed and, you know, we're the Dodgers broadcast and we're going to be covering this. And, you know, I immediately started to think of like all the memories and, 
just all the things and feeling blessed that I'd grown up a Dodger fan and listened to his voice every single day, pretty much of my life. Um, at least during baseball season, it was always on, um, whether it was the radio, the television and, you know, sitting next to Joe Davis, who ultimately was the man to replace Vin Scully and, um, the way that he was able to weave through that broadcast and, you know, feeling a ton of emotion about it too. Um, and, you know, wanting to do it right, but not having any preparation. <laughs> but in some ways that can be the best thing because it was very, very raw. Um, and I, I felt like sometimes that, that can be the best thing versus something that's super prepared. So was this something that you, uh, you know, and I've been on those uh, with the headset on and the producer talks to you and say, look, here's the news. This is what's coming on. Uh, how much from the time that that was said to you to when you actually went on air with it and, and what were you processing emotionally? Yeah, it was probably might have been like, so it, he came on like with one out and I forget what inning. Um, and then it was probably within like another, so that, that inning ended and we went through another half an inning. And then in that break, they're like, okay, we're, we're going to do this. Um, they're going to announce it on social and then we're going to talk about it. And it was like, oh my gosh. And, you know, I felt bad for our truck because they're going through like clips trying to like, you know, and we're covering a game and you're trying to, we're in San Francisco. So you're not at home. You don't have all your things. And they're trying to get different sound. They're trying to get photos, um, trying to weave it in. Um, you know, and then for Joe, I mean, Joe got really quiet and I could tell he was trying to figure out how and what he was going to say. Um, and again, you're, also live on television covering a baseball game so um it was it was so different from anything I could have imagined yet um I you know honestly Joe Davis the way he handled it I, I could not have imagined anyone doing it better um there were stories he told which was so perfect um for Vin Scully in that moment um that I had never heard uh that Joe just knew having studied and having known and again like not having prepared so just the things that came top of mind to him to weave into this game was was so well done um he had me emotional to be honest and it was it was honestly perfect tell me about your interaction with uh with Vince Scully I you know talked to uh, before earlier in the week about how I was just scared of him because I was just in awe of that person as someone who grew up a huge Dodger fan. What about you? What was your, uh, you know, your inter interaction with him? Well, it wasn't until, you know, honestly, the interesting part, and you, you know, this is, you know, my first game really ultimately was Sunday night baseball at Dodger stadium, um, covering a major league baseball game, just the way that everything had worked out in 2015. And my, my first, realization of so many that day of like oh my gosh is this really happening not only am I doing my first major league game major game was is you know walking into the Vince Scully press box and I remember very vividly looking up and then walking into that that booth and that was my first thought um was like oh my gosh this is where Vince sits and you know he was still currently you know working it wasn't until the next year that he retired um, but it wasn't, I hadn't met him yet. Um, obviously he wasn't there that day. Uh, there were a couple interactions where we were, you know, I was there on a Saturday and, you know, I was able to meet him. Um, but you know, at the end of his career, he didn't come out much. He was getting so many people that were constantly coming through. Um, so my interaction, like so many felt like, you know, it was him coming over for dinner every night because <laughs> his 
voice was on every dinner <laughs> um, joining us and the way he would talk to you made it feel like a friend, you know? Um, so it wasn't even my personal interaction. It was more of just the interaction I had had since I was born of listening to him um, in our home. Yeah, I was going to say, I mean, you grew up listening to to him and, and uh, he was a constant presence and your dad when you were little, little, and your dad was the one, I'm assuming, who uh, was deciding what was on TV at night. Was that a Dodger game always on? Always. It was always on. And this was even when he was a football coach and we had his tapes running um, on a separate TV so that he could watch the offensive line and whatever team they were going to play over and over and over again. So we had Vin on football on the, uh, like visually watching football O-linemen re in reverse, like over and over again. And Vin Scully on in the backdrop and his voice telling us about that night's Dodger game. <laughs> uh, I'm guessing, you know, uh, you have such a great relationship uh, with your folks. Tell me about relating all the time, you know, where you got to be around Vin Scully or, you know, you got to meet him or some sort of feedback from him, your conversations with your dad, because I'm guessing your dad was probably thrilled. Yeah, I think, you know, yes, his biggest thing was always, you know, in, in our relationship, my mom, too, I think, you know, as much as my dad was the baseball guy. Um, and this is where Vin and I think for any announcer and for me and I think about this um, are actually all the women that he reached um, in a time when, you know, growing up generationally well before me, you know, men watched baseball and sports and some women did. But then and my mom tells me this and reminds me all the time about the storytelling and how she wasn't a baseball fan, but she was a fan of the humans that were playing the game because of Vince Scully. And it's a reminder I've taken with me forever because, you know, I, as you know, want to reach as many women and continue to create this fandom of this amazing sport of baseball um, with women. And then was able to reach someone that I know probably would not have been reached because it was like <laughs> my dad, you know, being a coach and baseball around all the time. It was like, oh, man, when Vin's voice came on, it was like, shh, quiet. She wanted to hear the way that he was going to talk about the players on the field, and the way that he was going to be able to tell the story that night of the game that was happening. Yeah. And that was, we've been talking about, you know, how storytelling was such a, a big part of what he did. So the last time I was at Dodger stadium, uh, Mookie Betts got a big hit, uh, you know, uh, to, to win the game. And what jumped out at me was Billie Jean King was sitting not far from where my spot was and when a player would come off the field, she'd, she'd get out of her seat and walk over and yell to the player, hey, way to go, JT. Hey, way to go. And so when Mookie gets that hit, she actually came out of her seat, Jess, and went down and gave him a big hug. So she, you know, clearly comfortable in her presence around the team. And so I'm curious if you've had, this is a shot in the dark in terms of a question, if you had a chance to connect with her since the news about Vin's passing, because I'm guessing that those two probably had a, you know, a really good friendship. Yeah. I think her appreciation for, you know, especially her being, you know, part of a generation, you know, and watching, you know, and covering and, and her growing up in Southern California and, and very similarly listening to Vin all the time. And, you know, her brother being, you know, a major league baseball player and a pitcher for the giants, um, yeah, no, I actually texted with her um, and she basically just wanted to, she had been watching the game and she was talking about like the way that it all happened and came across and, you know, her thing was just how much, you know, similar to everyone. I mean, this is the amount of story 
stories that have come up, even honestly, Buster, at the games, I mean, we're here in San Francisco and the amount of people who have come up through the fans, they're yelling up, but like talking about Giants fans, you know, wearing Vin stuff. I mean, that says everything. Yeah. Um, and, and talking about how they've heard it, but Billy really just sharing more about how, you know, that was, that was their, their person that introduced them to baseball I mean, her parents weren't into sports and she growing up in Southern California, like so many um, listened to him and it turned her brother into a major league baseball player. And obviously it gave her an understanding of sport in a way that, I mean, she so beautifully still understands to this day. Well, you guys did a great job of it. Um, and uh, that, you know, that's awesome. I, I, I'm i going to make a completely horrible segue here because before we go, I want to get a minute from you on the Dodgers and the Padres. We've got them on Sunday Night Baseball this week. You just saw the Dodgers scale of one to 10. Tell me about your level of concern about the Dodgers injuries with their pitching staff. We know that, uh, you know, Walker Bueller is, is making his way back. Well, uh, Clayton Kershaw walked off the mound yesterday. He's got some back issues. Blake Trinan's trying to work his way back. Because that, to me, in the end, will probably have a lot to do with how far that team goes. Level of concern, too. Um, and the reason uh, I say that um, is because of who is coming back. And, I mean, Dustin, Bay, Dustin May should be here by next week. Walker Buehler was in the dugout. He's been with the team. I mean, we're going to see him return. And let's be real, they have a double-digit game lead over the Padres, over the Giants, um, the gap is massive. And the way they're playing, I mean, shoot, Buster, this week they called up Miguel Vargas and James Outman. Two guys make their major league debuts. James Outman gets on base seven of his first eight times. His first at bat, he hits a home run. Miguel Vargas, who's the number one prospect, his first at bat, hits what was a double in triples alley here in San Francisco, would have been a home run. The reason I'm saying this is, like, it's just a reminder of the depth and I get it. It's early. It's a small sample size, blah, 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 all the things, but just showing you continued, like, you know, the development that this system has of guys that are continuing to come up and they have pitchers in the system. So yes, Clayton Kershaw leaves the game yesterday. You never want to see that, but knowing that there is time that the guys that they are going to get in return and Buster, their bullpen, Evan Phillips. I know you have Sunday night baseball this weekend. Watch, Evan Phillips out of the bullpen. He's not the big name. He's not your Craig Kimbrell. I know Blake Trevins on the injured list, but Evan Phillips has been our best pitcher. And no one knows his name. And he hasn't, I think he's given up one earned run in 24 appearances. I mean, it is, it has been unbelievable what he has done out of the pen and been a guy to really be able to lean on, which is why I feel like even Clayton coming out in the fourth inning, um, after the fourth inning, our bullpen was able to continue to shut down the Giants because of how good they've been. All right, Jess. Uh, well, thanks for doing this, and I'm sure I'll be talking with you soon. Thanks, Buster. Todd Radom is a chief executive of our weekly quiz. He's a graphic artist whose work can be seen on ball fields all across America, all around the world, or you can go to his website, toddradom.com. Todd, how you doing this week? And I asked that question knowing that you're a Red Sox fan and you've been pulled in different directions. Buster, I'm, I guess in general, I'm fine, but I'm a little perplexed as a Red Sox fan. Okay. So here's what I'm going to throw past you. Uh, and I'll start with this. I think John Henry has been an amazing owner for the Red Sox. Uh, they won four championships since he took over the team. They ended the streak of 85 years without a championship. They went in 2004, 2007, 2013 after the Boston Marathon bombings. 
David Ortiz, the other Red Sox are great. You know, they, they uh, win the world series. Uh, then they win again in 2018, Alex Cora, terrific job as manager. Uh, if John Henry was a friend of mine, I think what I would say to him was it would be something along the lines of this. Uh, are you as passionate as you were in doing being owner of the Red Sox at the time you bought the team or throughout your tenure? Because if you're not, you ought to sell the team. You've been amazing in doing this. Uh, but if your other interests now, Liverpool, the Penguins, race car driving, all these other things are are such that you're okay with your team essentially regressing into a second-tier power in baseball as opposed to superpower where they've been for most of his time as owner, you ought to think about selling the team. And I, as I say, I don't, I'm not saying he's a terrible owner. I'm saying he's been a fantastic owner, but with every, the renovation of Fenway Park, it's been phenomenal. It might be time for him to think about doing that. What do you think? Well, Buster, I heard you run off this litany of achievements that have taken place during his tenure and I think to myself, other than that, Mrs. Lincoln, how was the play? Yeah. And I think about what have you done for me lately? But you are right in the sense that, uh, you know, this this was an enormous deal when his group purchased the club uh, yep. all those years ago. And he and his group have built this enterprise into this global behemoth of all these other things. What are you now? Um and yeah, I, I think there's a nugget of truth in terms of the the laser focus that seemingly used to be associated with this regime. It's tough. The Red Sox are a, a revenue-producing machine. You and I know that. Our listeners know that. You cannot poor mouth Red Sox fans. Uh, and, and I don't know if they're trying to necessarily, but given the revenues that are coming in, um, you have every right in the world to expect a uh, a first-tier payroll and a very proactive management. And it certainly seems we're not getting that. We're waiting. We're wondering. In the meanwhile, you see San Diego, for a large example, going all in. Red Sox used to be like that. Do the Red Sox all of a sudden want to be the Padres? It's a strange world we live in, Buster. Yeah, what has changed that would uh, compel the Red Sox to not re-sign their homegrown player, who's a great guy. It's not like Mookie Betts was out there complaining every day was a problem. No, he was a he's a great guy. They trade him to the Dodgers, and now it's pretty clear was a one-sided trade. Then the, you know, fast forward it, they haven't paid Xander Bogarts. What Bogarts said the other day kind of makes you wonder that the assumption that yeah he wants to stay with the Red Sox that may not be in play. No, but you know, as we go forward and then Raphael Devers now is a year and a half from free agency. Who knows what he's going to want to do if Xander leaves the perception of the, of the team and what they're doing is if they're sliding back. Buster, I, in a very different Red Sox world, I am remembering a conversation I had with you a quarter century or so ago about why the Red Sox were not looking to retain Mo Vaughn. And I don't expect right. you to remember that conversation, but there are times uh, over the course of a, a franchise's history, regardless of who that franchise is, that tough decisions have to be made. And sometimes these calls are right and sometimes they're wrong. But in the case of Mookie Betts, history is going to show. I mean, it already is showing. This is uh, an agreeable guy, good in the community, 
great on the field, MVP, all these things. If not him, who? And the same thing would apply to Xander Bogarts. Homegrown talent, champion multiple times now, something that we Red Sox fans were not able to say too many years ago. Um, So it is perplexing. It's bewildering. What are you doing with the money? I mean, that's it. God knows, Buster. I was up there uh, two weekends ago. I can tell you what the cost of a beer is at Fenway. I can tell you what those tickets cost because I paid for them. Um, it is not a, uh, you, you, we, we, we don't, I don't want to sound entitled, but when you pay top dollar for a product, whatever that product may be, you are, um, you assume that you're going to be getting something of equal value in return. And we're, I don't think we're getting it. And there are no signs that are being telegraphed uh, by management at this point that things are going to change anytime soon. A hundred percent. All right, let's get to this week's Phantom franchise. All right. On another note, Buster, there are a few franchises that keep constantly popping up in this conversation. And one of them is the San Francisco Giants, who in January 1992 announced that they were planning on moving to San Jose, where they would be rebranded as the San Jose Giants. The team wanted out of icy, windy, foggy candlestick park, which had been their home since 1960. The Giants candlestick lease would run out in 1994 and owner Bob Lurie's efforts to build a publicly financed downtown San Francisco ballpark had gone up in flames twice before. San Jose voters also defeated a similar ballot issue in 1990, but this time looked like it might be different. Lurie and San Jose Mayor Susan Hammer announced a plan to construct a $185 million 48,000-seat stadium in northern San Jose that would have played host to the club beginning in 1996. I can't wait to see the first shovel go into the ground, Lurie said at a news conference in San Jose, seated in front of a San Jose Giants logo backdrop. I wish it could be today. The NHL San Jose Sharks had recently begun play and were a huge success, and San Jose seemed like a viable landing spot for the Giants. The ballpark project, however, would need to be approved by voters. A ballot proposal was put together, which called for the city to fork over $155 million of the projected $185 million cost with the Giants paying the balance, plus any cost overruns. With infrastructure add-ons, the project would have netted out at least $265 million before overruns. When it came up for a vote in June of that year, the measure was rejected by about 55% of the voters, thus dooming the prospective move. A discouraged Lurie soon announced that he was putting the team up for sale. In August, he announced that he had reached a deal to sell the club to a group of Tampa investors for $110 million. We talked about that already. Yep. This proposed move also fell through, and he eventually wound up telling the Giants, selling the Giants to a local San Francisco group led by Safeway Supermarket CEO Peter McGowan. They later privately financed the ballpark that we know now known as Oracle Park. But today, Buster, we shine a light on the San Jose Giants, who are this week's phantom franchise. Yeah, and since, of course, being in Oracle Park, that they, they for years, I think, had the best baseball experience. You talk about the baseball experience at Fenway just now. Uh, you know, during the championship years, I love going to that ballpark. This weekend, we've got the uh, Dodgers playing host to the Padres, who I think now, I think San Diego at the moment might have the best ballpark experience. What do you think? I love San Diego. Downtown, 
having seen that neighborhood grow up around the ballpark since I went there and saw the place under construction back in 2002 or so, it is amazing for anybody who has never been there. Get out to San Diego because it is a festive experience. And certainly right now, Buster, seeing what the Padres are up to, it's uh, it's it's going to be like a carnival every night they have a home game. It's fantastic. Yeah, it's like the early years when John Henry owned the Reds, took over the Red Sox. Oh, when we were so young and innocent and they spent money. (laughs) All right, let's get to this week's quiz. All right, week 20, folks. And uh, I will go on record as stating the fact that the standings are as follows. Buster with nine, uh, Sarah with a mighty five, and Taylor holding up the back of the line at three. So here's this week's question. This current MLB ballpark, was constructed in less than 24 months, the fastest in modern history. Was it Truist Park in Atlanta, Citizens Bank Park in Philadelphia, PNC Park in Pittsburgh, or Kaufman Stadium in KC? Constructed in less than two years, Truist Park in Atlanta, Citizens Bank Park in Philly, PNC in Pittsburgh, or Kaufman Stadium in Kansas City? All right, Sarah, you want to go? Sure. I am not confident at all, but I'm going to go with C. Okay. I don't remember what it was, but C. <laughs> PNC Park in Pittsburgh. That's the one. Yes. All right, Taylor. I'll go A, Truest Park. Yeah, I'm kind of thinking that it might, I think you might be right, Taylor. Uh, and I know that, you know, there was a big push to get in there as quickly as possible. I'm just trying to think of the area and, you know, the, the challenges of building one. And along those lines, Todd, I think I'm going to go with D, Kaufman Stadium. Well, Sarah, you are correct. And you may not have known why you were correct, but it is PNC Park in Pittsburgh, constructed wow. in less than two years. Unbelievable. So Sarah vaults a little closer to Buster here. I'm coming yeah, for Sarah, you, Buster. you want to do a victory lap? <laughs> yeah, I'm coming for you. Don't call it a comeback. (laughs) All right. A little LL Cool J in here. Sarah rocking the bells. (laughs) All right, Todd. Thanks for doing this. All right, everybody. Thank you so much. Jumping into the numbers. This is Himbo Knows on Baseball Tonight. Himbo, of course, is Paul Mbikiti. He's a researcher at ESPN who's a honcho on the show Get Up. He's told us he's the head honcho, which means Himbo at some point is the head honcho of Get Up. You probably got a chance to, you know, run across Vince Scully or maybe secondhand, or maybe you've just read a lot about him. What, uh, what are your thoughts about the great Vince Scully? I have actually never had the opportunity to meet Vince Scully. Greeny did do an interview with Scully on his radio show, I want to say somewhere between two and three years ago, which I did help him with. And he reposted that link, I think sometime in the last couple of days after his passing. And I did have the chance to go back and listen. Look, Vin, Vin Scully is, look, you now belong to the ages. And there are very few people, I think, in any sport, whether they be a player, an executive, a broadcaster, anybody in any role that impacted more lives than he did. I, I guess I'd like to just start by reading some of my favorite Vin Scully notes and then just sort of wrap up sort of how I view his place in baseball history from a big picture perspective. These are a bit trivial, but I think they go a long way in sort of explaining the depth and breadth of his career buster. Jackie Robinson batted cleanup. First game as a broadcaster, 
Yasiel Puig did so in his last. I, I tweeted that a couple of days ago. Yasiel Puig himself replied to that note saying that he did not know that <laughs> and thanked me for posting, which was obviously quite cool. Secondly, Buster, Vince Scully called games started by both Preacher Rowe and Julio Orias. Those two men were born 80 years apart. And lastly, <laughs> Vince Scully, his first season as a broadcaster, 1950, was Connie Mack's last as a major league manager. Connie Mack was born, Buster, during the Civil War. Vince Scully did it for 67 years. He had an incomparable career. And if I had ha ever had the chance to talk to Vince Scully, I would have said, Vin, you were the soundtrack of my summer. And I think any number of baseball fans would have said the same thing. I woke up the morning um, after he died to a text from a friend of mine, a lifelong Dodger fan, who said, I yelled when they broke the news during the game, watched as many tributes as I could going to bed around 2.30 in the morning. I cried, and it hurts like I know it would. Probably the hardest death of someone I never met because he seemed like a part of my life. I don't think that my buddy had a unique experience. That's how many lives Vin Scully impacted. Rest in peace, man. You were a freaking legend. Yeah, I think it was Oral Hershiser who noted that uh, when Dodger fans voted on their Mount Rushmore, they had Jackie Robinson, of course, Sandy Koufax, it feels like, say, of course. I think Kershaw was another, and Vin Scully. Wow. And, and it feels like, uh, you know, that, that uh, you know, in the moment, it might feel like hyperbole that you're reaching, you're bending over backwards. No, I think that if you're a Dodger fan, you're a fan of baseball, you can understand why they would vote it that way. Mm, that is an extraordinary tidbit. I mean, th there are very few things in the world that can endure as long as he did in that role. Think how much society has changed since he began broadcasting games for the Dodgers in 1950. They had never won a championship at that point. They were still playing baseball games in Brooklyn and then did for the next seven or eight years. And yet, Vin Scully's voice, I would describe it perhaps best as timeless. Vin Scully, 100 years from now, will still sound uh, exactly as he did from the day that he started, and that's sort of the charm of baseball, the timelessness, his tempo, his temperament, his storytelling, his demeanor, it all just naturally fit. Baseball's natural habitat was the radio. I don't think there's anything ever in the history of baseball more pure than Vince Scully's voice on the radio. I hope that at some point you get some, uh, you know, deep dive into statistics and, and are able to prove what uh, a lot of broadcasters believe in that Scully had a direct pipeline to the baseball gods because they always felt like whenever Vin needed one more foul ball to finish his story, he always got it. The baseball <laughs> gods <laughs> always worked that out for him. So if you, no, my, if you get yeah. that information for me, Hembo, just uh, please bring it on board, okay? My only, my only pushback would be this. I don't think he had a pipeline to the baseball gods, Vester. I think that Vin Scully was. A baseball god. <laughs> Touche. Uh, that's for sure. All right. Uh, it just so happens that this Sunday, coincidentally, we're going to be in Dodger Stadium. We've got the Padres against the Dodgers. Padres were, of course, the, one of the most active teams leading up the trade deadline. Give me your top three trade deadline takeaways. Okay, my first is that I don't think any team has ever improved more midseason than the Padres have and will continue to. Let, let's contextualize everything that happened here. It happened so fast. Let's unpack it. In consecutive days, they added the best relief pitcher in the sport in Josh Hader, the best young hitter in the sport in Juan Soto. Josh Bell, who was seemingly a throw-in in that trade, was the apple of many teams' eye. 
And Brandon Drury, who they added as well, was the best position player on the Reds. And let's not forget, Fernando Tatis has not played a single game this season. On any given day, he can be the best player in baseball and has been on many days. Now, I'm fascinated to see where this goes in the short term because it has long been my belief, Buster, that you build a great baseball team not by adding a few great baseball players, but by having a bunch of good ones. And I think what the Padres have done in sort of sacrificing depth for high-end talent, that's much closer to an NBA approach. So I am like this team I'm viewing as a science experiment with A.J. Preller as their nutty professor. I say it's worth the risk given the fact that, look, the Dodgers have won more playoff games in the previous two years than the Padres have in their 54-year history. I appreciate a small mar- a has- you know, hashtag small market team going for the gusto, but look, to pretend that it's not a risky proposition is obviously foolish. This is absolutely a risky proposition. And yeah, I know you wanted to talk about the new postseason format and the impact it had on the trade market. I think it really drove the market. I think the aggression with which so many teams operated over the last two weeks stems directly from the fact that, A, all playoff teams are now guaranteed at least a three-game series, and, B, six teams now qualify in each league. Plus, the Phillies are 10 games back in the NL East. They made a flurry of moves, essentially, to try and nail down that sixth spot in the playoffs, uh, sort of going head-to-head against the Cardinals. The Mariners are 11 games back in their division. They traded for the best pitcher on the market, you just mentioned the Padres, 11 and a half games back right now in the National League West, and A.J. Preller turned into a Tasmanian devil. For my money, look, you can look at other teams like the Red Sox, maybe the Orioles, a few others that were sort of quiet and scratch your head, but I think most of, I think a lot of the action that we saw here leading up to the deadline is a direct result of Major League Baseball's new postseason format working. Right. In just a moment, we're going to be talking with uh, Todd Radom, uh, who is a noted Red Sox fan. Uh, what uh, what do you see in the future for Red Sox fans like Todd? <laughs> well, look, Lester, it's not obvious to me that Heim Bloom, their general manager, has any earthly idea what he's doing. Now, I obviously say that facetiously because I do recognize his background. And, look, this is a play, uh, uh, an executive whose reputation was beyond reproach when he was with, with Tampa. I also recognize that there is unique pressure from ownership in Boston. But let's just sort of unpack what we've seen here lately. And I'm not sure it yields a good result for the future a team that was two wins away from the World Series last year, okay? So in the last week, we've seen them trade away the heart and soul of their team in Christian Vasquez to an American League rival. We saw them acquire two months of Tommy Pham, three years and two months of a relatively useless Eric Hosmer, who now is going to block their best prospect in Tristan Casas. He seems months away from the big leagues. And let's go back to a couple not foreseeable mistakes, a couple foreseen mistakes. Buster, uh, Red Sox uh, DFA Jackie Bradley Jr. this week. They traded Hunter Renfro for him. Hunter Renfro is the best hitter on the best team in the National League Central right now. That didn't make any sense at the time. It obviously makes even less sense now. And let's not forget, $140 million for Trevor Story after offering only $90 million to your Hall of Fame shortstop? I, I don't – look, if I'm a fan of the Boston Red Sox, I look at the pattern of behavior we've seen since the calendar flipped. There is no obvious reason for me to believe that my program is moving in the right direction. The Orioles have already passed me. And right now, if you look at the trajectory of all the rest of the teams in my division, I can say definitively that the Red Sox have the fifth most promising future amongst those five clubs. All right. So you're not impressed with the work of Pine Bloom. That is well established. Uh, Whose work are you impressed with among head of baseball operations? Oh, Alex Anthopoulos, man. That, that guy is playing chess. 
for the Braves while every other executive is playing uh, either checkers or in Heim Bloom case, tic-tac-toe. L- l- listen to what he has done in terms of building a long-term approach to what he's doing there. For 33 years, Buster, of mostly prime service time, the Braves will have paid Austin Riley, Matt Olson, Ronald Acuna, and Ozzie Albies a total, a total of $515 million. That is good business when you consider that that's probably about the dollar figure that Juan Soto by himself will command on the free agent market in a few years. Keep in mind, this Braves lineup right now is the second most potent in the National League. They're averaging 4.8 runs a game. They're also doing that as the third youngest lineup in the National League behind only the Diamondbacks Pirates. Those two teams are a combined 32 games below 500. Look, the team of the 90s, the Braves, they won with a core of great young pitching. I could see the Braves becoming the team of the 2020s and doing it around those four core young position players. What say you? Uh, I agree with you. I, you know, another way to look at it, I, I thought about this. You, you mentioned uh, Soto and his overall contract. Uh, those three players, uh, on average, for the foreseeable future, you know, Riley uh, and, and Matt Olson and Ronald Acuna Jr. will make a combined $55 million a year, which is about what we think Otani's going to get in free agency, uh, you know, in 14 months. Man. So to put that in perspective, I mean, those are three phenomenal players. Uh, and boy, you talk about running a, a a team, running a budget, the flexibility that gives you. Like I, I know there were Mets fans who were upset when I tweeted out that people think that Degrom is going to wind up with the Braves next year. Well, guess what? This is how it happens. <laughs> I'll tell you what, Buster. I, I think that's an outstanding point, and the reason I think that I would describe Alex Anthopoulos as the best chess player in baseball, and the reason for it is because that guy always sees one or two moves ahead of all of his peers. We saw it at the trade deadline last year. We've seen it with some of these extensions. That team is as well positioned as any in the sport for the next decade. Well, and it's well positioned to take a run at going back to back. Uh, We'll Mm -hmm. see how that goes. All right. Uh, And lastly, Garrett Cole got beat up in his start on Wednesday, giving up a bunch of home runs against the Mariners. How concerned are you? Quite, very, extremely. Plus, the Yankees do not have an ace anymore, and of that I'm certain. I have three points to back it up. Number one, Buster, he just has too many blow-up games. Too many blow-up games. Wednesday was his fifth time this season allowing five earned runs or more. That is tied for most in the American League. Two, Buster, he is getting absolutely destroyed when falling behind in the count. The league is batting 406. The league is batting 406. Oh, six in hitters counts against Cole this season. He cannot withstand aggressive blows when he falls behind in the count. And three, and I hate to be conspiratorial, Buster, but he does not have spider tack anymore. Since Major League Baseball cracked down on foreign substances, that was June 3rd of last season. Cole owns a 391 ERA. The league owns a 682 OPS against him. For context, the average qualified starter during that time owns a 376 ERA with a 697 opponent OPS. Garrett Cole is an average starting pitcher. We now have 14 months of data, 42 starts that say, if you believe otherwise, you're just fooling yourself. Well, and I got to tell you, uh, I, you know, it's going to be a tough run for him going into the postseason because you're going to have a lot of folks like myself writing stories about how, boy, this is uh, you know, litmus test for a guy who got the biggest pitching contract in the history of baseball. How will he pitch in the postseason? That first start that he makes in October, the pressure on his shoulders is going to be enormous. 
Oh my All goodness. Right. I, yeah. Oh yeah. There's no question about it. When you do your you know highest pressure ranking, whatever index we do before the postseason, he is one and no one else is especially close. Yep. Uh, I completely agree with you. All right. Thanks, Embo. Later, friends. Bleacher Tweets. All right, Buster, it's time for Bleacher Tweets. The first one comes from Katie Casey. Do you have a favorite behind-the-scenes story about Vince Foley? I mentioned uh, to Carl that I was afraid of him, and I avoided him. And it, it wasn't the first time I actually spoke with him. It was actually in his last year of broadcasting. We had him on the podcast. And that was a great conversation, but I was so nervous going into that. Um, I might, I think, Sarah, next week we ought to play some of that or play that interview that we did with Ben. That was a lot of fun. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it was so touching to see everybody's tributes on Twitter. I mean, I only can imagine how great of a man he was, not knowing him personally, but it seemed like he touched the lives of so many people. The next one comes from Mr. Jakey R.S., which players today do you think will end up on their team's Mount Rushmore? Trout, Altuve, Vlad Jr., Tatis Jr., anyone else? Potentially Soto? Wow, that is a broad question. Uh, so it's hard to project Soto to be on the Padres' Mount Rushmore because we don't have to know how long he's going to be there, right? It might be just be two and a half years. Uh, Trout, of course, there's no doubt about that because he's going to finish his career uh, considered to be one of the best players of all time. Altuve. I'm trying to think because you got Craig Biggio and you got uh, uh, Jeff Bagwell, who are Hall of Famers. You know, Roger Clemens had some good years there, but he wasn't there that long. Uh, I'm trying to think of you know, Larry Durker, you know, was a good pitcher for them and he was a broadcaster for them. He might be on that thing. Yeah, I think Altuve has got a real shot. What, who would be on your Mount Rushmore? Oh my God, Sarah, you can't drop <laughs> that one. I'm throwing in one. Broad from, question. from at Sarah Kate Sports. <laughs> she writes in. <laughs> okay, the last one from at Nicholas Frost. Y'all forgot the twins on the trade deadline pod, despite them having the busiest deadline ever. Thoughts on them adding Lopez from Taylor's O's? Yeah, I saw Fangraphs said that they actually acquired the most production. Uh, leading up the deadline. They got a lot of credit for that. We we talked on the show the other day about how they did a lot and the Guardians and the White Sox basically did nothing, right? It felt like the teams in the Central in the, both the National League and the American League didn't do a lot because there's not a lot of pressure. Like, there are not a lot of big buyers on there. So, yeah, the Twins were favorites uh, leading the division going into the trade deadline and I think now clearly the favorites to win going forward. All right, that's it for Bleacher Tweets. Be sure to send your questions using hashtag Bleacher Tweets. And if you like listening to our podcast, as always, be sure to check out our YouTube segment with Buster and Tim. It's great. Um, next week, we will be recording Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday. Yep, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday next week, because I'm taking a red eye back from Los Angeles, and the sound quality is not going to be as good as it could be if we just do it Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. And, and I thought, Sarah, I... Thought about your question, process it now for about 45 seconds. I'd say this, any Mount Rushmore for me as a reporter, got to start with Tony Gwynn. Tony Gwynn was amazing to cover uh, because he loved to talk about baseball. He was so good at it. Uh, and he was anecdotal in all of his descriptions. Like I could ask Tony a, a specific question about a situation and he would just paint picture. He was like the Vin Scully 
of baseball players, in, which is, shouldn't be a surprise because now that I think about it, Tony grew up as a Dodger fan listening to Vin Scully on the radio. So that probably was it. And as Derek has acknowledged in this documentary, he's sort of the anti-Derek Jeter because Derek, Derek just answered questions to get past the question. Like, you know, I could ask uh, Tony a question about, hey, what happened in that big key at bat in the, in the uh, ninth inning? And he would just go on and on and he would describe what he was thinking, uh, what the pitcher he thought was thinking, what the pitcher was wearing, the history between the two of them. And with Derek, he kind of give you a shrug. Yeah, I got a, I got the game winning hit and we won. <laughs> it, was, it was so different. And I and I and I I told Derek this. I thought his strategy in dealing with that, if I were a player in New York, that was the right way to go because he just didn't want to create a headline for the next day. And that was his goal. And he wanted to be available to reporters. And he was always available uh, in those moments. All right. That's it for today. That's it for this week. Uh, my thanks today to Sarah and Taylor and to Todd and to Hambo and to Jess Mendoza and to Carl Rabich. And our thanks to Vince Scully, who enriched our lives uh, for sure in all the years that we got to listen to him. Uh, thanks for listening. Stay safe. And remember, hate and inequality based on skin color is something we need to fight against every single day. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Call 1-800-DIRECTV. Claim based on total games carried on sports networks. Sports availability varies by zip code and requires choice package. Terms or restrictions apply.